In Washington, D.C. alone, more than 2,000 children will go missing each year. It is a very sobering statistic. Not all of these children will come home either. One in particular is a little girl by the name of Relisha Rudd. Relisha was last seen on March 1st, 2014. She was only eight years old. Now, I am teaming up with missing persons advocates, trace investigators, and anyone who will talk to me regarding this case for an all-new investigative podcast. Our mission is simple. Find Relisha Rudd. It's time to bring her home. So, you guys, today I have a crazy story to tell you all. This is a story of five grown men who vanished into the snow-covered woods in Northern California. By February of 1978, a drought had broken in Northern California, blanketing rural areas of the state in sheets of snow. As if Yuba County residents needed another reason to stay inside, radios and TVs were spewing real-life crime drama. First, with filmmaker Roman Polanski's escape to France in the face of an impending statutory rape sentencing. Then, when a murder suspect named Ted Bundy was arrested in Florida after escaping from Colorado authorities twice. Needless to say, they had a lot to make them want to stay inside. The snow just was the icing on the cake. (laughs) Why icing? (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Well... At least they didn't run out of interesting things to hear about in the rest of the world. Oh no, that was not an issue. Especially when the drama came to their own backyards. By the end of the month, the grisly story dominating the airwaves was one of their very own home of Yuba County. On February 24th, 1978, a group of friends from Yuba City in California, Gary Dale Mathis, Jack Madruga, Jackie Hewitt, Theodore Ted Weir, and William Sterling set out on a trip to watch a basketball game. They left after the game finished and somehow drove up a snow-covered mountain into the wilderness to never be seen again. Okay. Interesting. It gets even more interesting. The group was aged between 24 and 32 years of age, but they had developmental disabilities and were all enrolled in a day program for mentally handicapped adults. But that didn't mean that they were, like, unable to function in society. You know, like, they could still go out and about and be okay and go do things. Mm -hmm. Gary had schizophrenia and was on medication to control his symptoms. Jack had a low IQ, but hadn't been diagnosed as, like, mentally disabled. And both of them had served in the U.S. Army and had driver's licenses. Okay. Ted Weir was employed for a while as a janitor and snack bar clerk, but quit at the urging of his family, who thought his slowness was causing problems. Jackie Charles Hewitt had a slight droop to the head and was sometimes slow to respond, and a loving shadow of Ted Weir, who looked after Hewitt in a protective sort of way. 
and would dial the phone for him when Hyatt had to make a phone call. That they took care of each other. Jack Mataruga was a high school graduate and army veteran. He was laid off in November of 1977 from his job as a busboy for Sunsweet Growers. William Lee Sterling was Mataruga's special friend, deeply religious, and would spend hours at the library reading literature to help bring Jesus to patients in mental hospitals. Gary Dale Mathis was an assistant in his stepfather's gardening business and an army veteran with a psychiatric discharge after drug problems that developed in Germany five years before. On Friday, February 24th, they drove about 50 miles north of Yuba to Chico, California to attend a college basketball game. When the game ended at the California State University at around 10 p.m., they stopped three blocks away at Bears Market, mildly annoying the clerk who was <laughs> trying to close up. And the guys bought one Hostess cherry pie, one Langendorf lemon pie, one Snickers bar, one Marathon bar, two Pepsis, and a quart and a half of milk. That is, um, that's a very interesting menu. Yeah. Because really, when you started out, I was like, okay, so they went and had like a nice dinner before they got on the road home. But A nice dinner at the market? No, that was before you got to the word market. They got pies and Snickers, but no, Snickers bars can make a good dinner. <laughs> I'm sorry. You can want some Snickers. But um, marathon bars are pretty good, too. But, you know, come on. I've never had one. I haven't had one in a long time. But, you know, any kind of chocolate. Let's get realistic. But, um... That's, that's not what I was expecting when you were like, the guys went about a block or whatever away. And I was like, okay, they sat down and had a nice meal. No, no. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's just a very interesting mint Pepsi and milk mm-hmm. menu. So their family members knew the men had all gone to this game in Chico, and it was thought that maybe they did this to kind of get themselves pumped up for the upcoming basketball game they had the next day. The next day, when they failed to return from Chico, though, their families just immediately knew something was wrong and called the police from the get-go. Like, they knew they were coming back for this big game. And when they weren't there for that big game, something's wrong. Well, it strikes me odd that no one in the family felt that was a nice distance for these people who did have these challenges to go by themselves. I mean, I guess maybe that's something they did. They weren't. Yeah, I don't think they were. They weren't so critical that they needed an escort. Yeah. But and I think, too, they took care of each other. Right. Like so, your disability, I took care of yeah. you with my disability kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It just, it just seems a little interesting. Yeah, I kind of thought the same thing, but I mean... Somehow they made it work, and they were able to function in society for the most part. Yeah, I mean, I can understand that because I can't hear, but you can't see. So I, I see for you, and you hear for me. And, you know, that's that's kind of how people with disabilities function. Yeah. So it, it does make sense. A little I mean, I different guess just, than mental disabilities, but yes. Yeah, very mm-hmm. different from mental disabilities. But I guess I'm just one of those desperately protective people. You are. I am. But um, that would have been my response. So, 
They were supposed to play uh, that basketball game February 25th that was part of a tournament. And the winners of the tournament were going to get like this free week trip to Los Angeles. So, you know, they were like dead set on this game. Like they mm-hmm. had a lot at stake. Would have meant a lot to them. Yeah, they were not going to miss it. And, you know, before they went out that night, their clothes had been laid out the evening before. And their Gateway Gators uniforms were just sitting there waiting for them to come back to them. That's definitely interesting. It definitely is interesting. And it was so important that Ted Weir specifically asked his mother to wash his new white high-top sneakers for the tournament, saying, we got a big game Saturday. Don't you let me oversleep. (laughs) That sounds like what you'd have to say to me. And yeah, I know it does, right? <laughs> like, they fully intended to mm-hmm. return home, except they never did. The area where the men would end up last being seen provided more questions than answers, though. Like, it just heightened the mystery. It didn't help anything. How was that? How did that make it more of a question? <sighs> okay, so for starters... The rugged stretch of road where the men ended up had a few strange occurrences the very same night the men went missing. Not only was it the same night, but it was also around the same time. So, right now, I'm going to take a step away from talking about the men for a second to tell you another part of the story that ties in. It was in this same stretch of road where the men were going to meet their fate that someone else almost met theirs. You see, Joe Shones was having a heart attack. The 55-year-old Californian had felt just fine a few minutes previously, navigating his Volkswagen on a desolate mountain road near Rogers Cow Camp in the Plymouth National Forest. He had went there to see if the weather conditions were going to be good enough to bring his family along for a weekend excursion the following day. But, as he drove further into the night, snow drifts slowed his tires. When he got out to push the car, the exertion brought on searing pain in his chest. It was February 24, 1978, and Shones was miles from help. As he sat in his car wondering what to do, he noticed two sets of headlights, one belonging to a pickup truck. Hoping he could flag down the passerby, he exited his vehicle and began screaming for help. He would later say that he saw a group of men, one woman, and a baby. They continued walking, ignoring him, screaming for help. Hours later, back inside his car, he saw again what he thought were flashlights. When he went back outside to yell into the darkness, no one responded to his voice yet again. Hours into this ordeal, with his car still stuck, and I guess, Shones felt well enough to begin walking down the mountain road toward a lodge roughly eight miles away. So apparently, when he was chilling in the car, whatever was causing the pain must have subsided. If it was like an angina attack, mm-hmm. um, it feels like a heart attack. It's it's a really bad feeling. Yeah. Um, or if it was like a severe anxiety attack, many people thought they were having a heart attack and it was really bad anxiety. If I was alone on a mountain road, desolate with no other cars, I would have an anxiety attack. 
So yeah, yeah. I, you know, especially if I saw these people that wouldn't respond to my cries just walking around, mm-hmm. you know. I would probably go ahead and have a heart attack today, truth. Yeah. But um, yeah. So I mean, it could have been some of that stuff. So as he got to feeling better. He, like I said, walked down to that lodge about eight miles away. On this walk down to the lodge, he passed a 1969 Mercury Montego, but the vehicle had no occupants. Perhaps he thought, you know, it belonged to the group he had seen earlier. Yeah, that's a perfectly good explanation. There you go. So, at this time, you know, he was pretty preoccupied with his own emergency. True. So, he wasn't really overly worried about the car but authorities would later realize the biggest story to emerge from that dark desolate road wasn't this man's brush with death it was the fact that shones had likely wound up being the last person to see ted weir gary mathis jack madruga jack hewitt and bill sterling alive or at least their car okay that's just creepy that's that's terrible. Yeah. In the early morning hours of February 25th, Shones made it to the lodge and was able to get medical treatment. There was no reason to mention having seen the mercury until the newspapers began to blare out the notices about the five men who had gone missing. When Weir and Sterling didn't come home, their mothers began calling the parents of others and soon the police were involved. That's how the paper started getting circulated to tie into Sean so he would tell his story. Now we're back up to the story of the men. Now that we know how the sighting of the car was found and things like that, how they knew where to look for the men. But to figure out why they were there, authorities began to piece together the rest of the men's day, much like I did in the beginning of the episode. Regardless of how much they worked on their timeline of events, the question remained how these five men came to be on an unforgiving, merciless, rugged mountain road more than 50 miles from their homes in and around Marysville and Yuba City, California. It was just honestly one of the many mysteries surrounding this disappearance, and none of them was known to have any business on that part of the mountain at all. That was not on the route from their home to where the basketball game was or anything like that? Not to my knowledge. Interesting. Police in the Yuba County area began searching for the men. Of course, the first thing they came upon was Jack's car. On Tuesday, February 28th, authorities found the Mercury on the same mountain road where Shones had last seen it and where a park ranger had reported its location after hearing the missing person's bulletin. The junk food had been consumed, except for one half of a candy bar. The keys to the vehicle were gone, and it likely had enough gas to continue on, but a snowbank seemed to be what it caused the tires to kind of spin out. So, Jack and the four other able-bodied men should have been able to dislodge it without a lot of difficulty. But they didn't. It seems as if the men just left it there. There was nothing to indicate that they even tried to get the car out. 
police then began to take in the area around them. And it was far from what the men dressed in light layers would have ventured into. Especially since the weather that night was said to have turned bad. Like mm. blizzard bad. No. Nothing was making any sense to these families, to authorities, basically anyone who knew anything about the case. The undersheriff, Jack Beecham, was actually quoted as saying, This case is bizarre as hell. Unfortunately, he had no idea how accurate of a statement that would prove to be. Organizing a search party in the midst of winter was no easy task especially when it meant combing through rough terrain filled with rocky surfaces, wooded paths, and snow-covered slopes. Helicopters surveyed the area from above. On-ground officers tried to use horses to get around rocky roads. They entertained a number of eyewitness sightings of the men, including one where they were driving the pickup Sholmes had mentioned. That first truck? Mm-hmm. Apparently, there was eyewitnesses that they had been driving that. But none of this seemed plausible. Another thing you have to keep in mind is that the night the men went missing, a nasty winter storm had come through. And by morning, any tracks that would have indicated that they tried to get the car out of the snowbank or to show searchers which way they went into the wilderness were completely gone. And it wasn't until the ground began to thaw that answers would come to the surface. Please tell me you're using that metaphorically. I wish. In June of 1978, a small group of weekend motorcyclists came across a campsite. This campsite played host to an abandoned forest service trailer about 60 feet long, adorned with its ever-so-typical busted window. Curious... The motorcyclist went inside. Oh my gosh, you never go into the creepy random building. I know, there's like every horror movie ever that says, do not go into the abandoned creepy house. And what do you do? You go into the abandoned creepy trailer. Hide in the closet. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, no. Mm -mm. I mean, I probably would not have done that. Oh, I know I wouldn't if I'm chicken. I'd have been like, oh look, there's a trailer, gotta go. (laughs) True. I mean... I probably would have done our favorite thing to do, which is, you know, scream and run. I'm a screamer and runner. Mm-hmm. Scream and run always works. Yep. But these people went on in anyways. After seeing what was inside that trailer, the motorcyclist knew to call the authorities. And authorities concluded that the window had been busted in order to gain access to the shelter it would have provided to the intruder or intruders. Recovery teams spent half a day clearing five huge trees from the roadway before reaching the trailer. Once inside the creepy random trailer, they found some noteworthy contents. Empty cans of food, extra clothing, wood furniture, paperback books, and Ted Weir's body. His body was tucked into a bed, draped in sheets from head to toe, And one thing I want to mention here is that the way his body was covered clearly showed authorities that he did not cover himself. Someone else had done it. Because of how neatly the sheets were laid out one by one, authorities knew it wasn't him that did it. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Then authorities lifted the veil and found his shoes missing and his feet badly frostbitten. Something else I think I should mention is that along with Ted's body, investigators found a watch nearby that didn't belong to him or any of the other men. Oh, no. The trailer was also over 19 miles from where Jack's Mercury was. Wow. Somebody had to have picked them up. I mean, 19 miles? Well, they were witnessing that pickup truck. This is true. Maybe that was true. Maybe that part was true, because... It, that that's a long distance to walk unless you're in like some major marathon shape yeah. I mean, that's a long ways to walk so when it comes to the men ted was the one who his own brother actually said that he lacked common sense and was found under eight layers of sheet on a bed inside the trailer with his hands on his chest both pant legs were rolled up above his knees Revealing apparent blood poisoning and gangrene, as well as five toes lost to frostbite. Poor thing. Forensic analysis of his beard growth indicated he survived four to six weeks after going missing. Wow. During which time he shed about 80 to 100 pounds from his 5 foot 11, 200 pound frame. Wow. A brown leather wallet. A ring inscribed with the word Ted and a bead necklace lay nearby on the bedside table. Other things in the trailer, I mentioned some food, but I didn't mention how much. There were some 31 cans of food from an outside storage locker that had been opened and emptied according to case files with no conclusive fingerprints. Okay. Another locker that would have had enough meals to last all five men an entire year remained unopened. All right. A propane tank outside the trailer that could have provided gas and heat was also untouched. Okay. This is just getting more confusing. Burnable wood and paper were found throughout the trailer, but no evidence indicated a fire had ever been started despite... Ted Weir's cause of death being ruled as exposure slash pulmonary edema, often called, you know, wet lung. Okay. The food had been pried open with an Army P-38 can opener. And these things, they are like a small sickle-shaped little device that only Gary and Jack would have had experience using. They were both in the army. They also would have had some survival skills. Gary's sneakers were inside while Ted's sturdier leather shoes were gone. Leading investigators to believe that Gary Mathis had been inside the trailer at least long enough to swap footwear. Jack and William were found two days later and eight miles closer to the car on opposite sides of a mountain road leading to the trailer. It's almost like they dropped one by one on the way there. Mm-hmm. Well, I thought about that. In those conditions, a 19-mile possible yeah. hike or something, makes sense. By the time they were found, there was nothing left of William besides bones scattered across the forest floor. Jack's body had been picked apart by animals and dragged to a nearby stream. No. Car keys were still in his pants pocket. 
The Yuba County Coroner identified Jack Madroga's cause of death as hypothermia and exposure. That makes sense. But he couldn't determine what happened to William. Okay. Going against the pleas of seasoned investigators, Jack's father joined the search. I definitely understand why they didn't want him there. Yeah. On June 8th, he spotted his son's jacket not far from the trailer. When the elder Hewitt picked it up, Jack's spine fell out. Dear Lord. He was identified by the teeth in his skull found 50 feet away. Oh, that's so sad. Why was his head separated from his spine by 50 feet? Animals? Maybe. Possibly. All that was left to do now was find Gary. He wasn't anywhere near the others? No. Okay. After two weeks with little progress made, investigators called off the search on June 19, 1978, leaving his emotionally battered family without the closure they so desperately craved. Mm, that's sad. To this day, we have never found the body or any trace, for that matter, of Gary Mathis. Whoa, 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 whoa. wait. That's all? This is how you're going to leave it? Not entirely. Whether you are a true crime junkie, just love murder stories, or you're like me and just a weirdo for all real life mysteries, I've got the perfect thing for you. Since you like my show, I think you would also like Sword and Scale. Sword and Scale is the longest standing true crime podcast, combining 911 calls and interrogation audio to tell you real life stories that will give you the chills. These guys really know what they're doing. They are like the OG of true crime podcasting. Sword and Scale dates all the way back to 2014, years before other true crime podcasts became popular. So it's very unlikely you'll run out of anything to listen to anytime soon. Sword and Scale's host and creator, Mike Bodette, expertly narrates each shocking episode to fully immerse listeners into a carefully crafted real-life story that will prove that even the worst monsters are real. Sword and Scale is available bi-weekly on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, and wherever you listen to your podcast. Subscribe today and leave them a review. That's Sword and Scale, also available at swordandscale.com. Subscribe today and give it a listen. Sword and Scale is proving that the worst monsters are real. First, I want to take a very close look at Gary Mathis, then some of the possibilities of things that could have happened to the men. So the big question right now is, who was Gary Mathis? He was slim with dark hair, a small birthmark on the right side of his chin, and double vision when not wearing his glasses. Gary was an outlier among the group of the missing five, though. The others, they had intellectual disabilities that became clear in their younger years. Sterling had spent most of his childhood in Napa State Hospital, which was then called the Napa Insane Asylum, according to case files with the Yuba County Sheriff's Office. Gary was first placed in a psychiatric ward as a sophomore in high school, following a bad hallucinogenic trip, according to his parents. 
And I mean, you know, this is the late seventies when you know, like yeah. let's see, this is the late seventies when all this is happening. So they were they were like teens and early seventies, late sixties. I mean, hallucinogenics were not like uncommon. Yeah. No, <laughs> this was um when people went on trips frequently without leaving the house. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I mean it kind of makes sense for this point in time. Mm-hmm. But still it kind of might can explain some stuff later on, maybe. Yeah, true. Gary actually consistently kept using drugs throughout his service in the US Army in the early 70s. Now, some of his service recognitions in the army include a sharpshooting medal, an AWOL arrest. And a medical discharge for paranoid schizophrenia. That's encouraging. Yeah, it kind of went downhill after the first one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, while in sheriff's custody after his AWOL arrest in February of 1973, Gary called two sergeants and a deputy to his cell. When they opened his cell, he walked into the hallway stark naked and punched one of the sergeants in the face, sending blood spilling from his mouth and nose. He tried to hit the other sergeant as well, but was subdued. When he was asked why he hit the two sergeants, Gary responded saying something along the lines of, I want to get out of the army. Like, I want to get out of here. And in the end, he ended up getting what he wanted. He was soon medically discharged. That same month, Gary was watching TV at his cousin's house around 8.30 a.m. while the cousin's 17-year-old wife slept, groggy from medication used to cope with an ongoing illness. The cousin went to check on Gary after a bathroom break turned suspiciously long and allegedly found him straddling the woman, groping her breast, as she lay, like, motionless in her underwear, like, literally sleeping. Okay. The cousin then asked Gary what he was doing, to which he allegedly replied that he wanted to kiss the woman. When the cousin said that he was calling 911, Gary responded, allegedly, saying, Good, I want to go back to jail. Gary, in the end, pleaded guilty to battery of a peace officer for that incident in the jail, And a second charge of assault with intent to rape was dropped as a result of his plea deal. Yuba County Superior Court employees are still unable to find details of Gary's sentencing. Under current California law, he could have faced up to three years in prison if convicted of battery of a peace officer and nine years for assault with intent to rape. But Gary was out within eight months. In his next run-in with the law, that December, police had evidence that he visited the home of a couple he knew after shooting methamphetamine and dropping bennies or swallowing tablets of the amphetamine benzodrine, according to some case files, anyways. While at the home of this couple that he knew, Gary was acting erratically, talking about how he wanted to stab a woman in the jaw, and the couple later told this to police after they called them when he told their three-year-old daughter, I thought I killed you once. I guess I'll have to do it again. After that statement, the man and woman reportedly kicked Gary out of their house and watched as he pounded on locked doors until police arrived. All right. 
Court records do not indicate he served any jail time in connection with the incident. I'm assuming we're going to get to a reason why he never serves any jail time. He's me. Okay, that's not good. He had other run-ins with the law, too. He was arrested on suspicion of grand theft auto. He had a citation for disturbing the peace and driving without a license where he allegedly told arresting officer, F you cop, all you mother effers. He had a slew of bar fights and complaints he was prowling at a local cemetery. Oh, that's just weird. The local PD, they knew him well. <laughs> Obviously. Gary Whitley actually was dating Gary Mathis's sister Sharon at this time in 1967 and he would later go on to marry her but the pair would eventually divorce and it was during their divorce proceedings when the boys went missing. So during all of this Gary Whitley gave a statement where he was quoted as saying that drugs had warped Gary Mathis's brain but when the two reconnected after their military service, which was Vietnam for Whitley and a base in Germany for Mathis, Mathis was largely in and out of his family's home and not mentally stable. After being picked up by Stockton Police in 1974, Gary Mathis was admitted to a nearby state mental hospital. He spent two days there before crawling out through a drain pipe. Okay. A and big drain pipe. I hope it was a big drain pipe. Oh, my Lord. Not only did he crawl out through this drain pipe, he walked and hitchhiked back to Marysville, still wearing his hospital pajamas, according to some case files. Okay. I don't think if I was going to pick up a hitchhiker, I would pick up one wearing a mental hospital outfit. That would deter me, yeah. That would definitely make me think a few thousand times. Mm-hmm. But apparently not everybody. There you go. While it was a daring escape, it was familiar. Gary Mathis had previously sneaked out of Letterman Army Hospital Psychiatric Ward in San Francisco and later walked away from another mental health facility in 1975. In 1975, with a short stint at Yuba College proving unsuccessful, Gary abruptly left school and moved to Oregon to stay with his grandmother. His mother and stepfather, Ida and Robert Klopf, finally reached him on the phone weeks later and pleaded with him to come back to Yuba County. And it's reported to the sheriff's office that he basically just replied to them by hanging up. His parents didn't hear from him until he showed up on their doorstep five weeks later, ragged and filthy. He had walked from Portland to Marysville. He told them he survived by stealing milk off of porches and eating dog food to stay alive on the 540-mile trek. That, that's disgusting. But think about it. If he can do 540 miles from Portland, Oregon yeah. to Marysville, California. 19 miles would be nothing. Exactly. This is so true. Later that year, a Yuba County couple awoke to find Gary Mathis standing in their bedroom. Oh my God, heart attack city. Exactly. Oh, my God. According to the case files, he had actually punched through the window and unlocked their front door and was now looking for a ring to return to Satan. Okay. That's what the couple told police. Yeah, okay. All right. When the couple asked why he was there, he said 
they were in his house and he was there to collect print. Okay, so that's definitely a 911 call. Immediately. 911, MI5, the men in black, call them all. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> Gary's path straightened out after that, though. He started consistently taking his schizophrenia medication and was able to hold down a job with his stepfather's gardening business. He had no notable contact with police during the two years leading up to his disappearance, and his parents said he had not, quote, gone haywire in private during that time. He had no episodes during that two years, in public right. or in private. Right. Then he joined Gateway Projects and started hanging out with Sterling, Weir, Madruga, and Hewitt about a few months before they went missing. But even though he was under the should-be mellowing haze of the antipsychotic drugs such as cogentin, stelazin, and prolixin, Gateway Gators basketball coach Robert Pinnock told investigators he still felt like Gary Mathis, quote, could possibly flip out at any time. Gateway has been closed for decades and its leaders from the time are dead, leaving the question of how Gary Mathis even got involved in the first place completely unanswered. Even the Yuba County Sheriff at the time does not know how or why Gary had gotten into the program. Even more eerily is what a woman named Janet, who was a longtime friend of Gary's, revealed in a 1978 interview. She told the story that Gary had repeatedly told her. That was the story of a dream where he and several other people would disappear. According to interview notes, Janet also had one other thing to say about Gary Mathis. She described him as, quote, a very violent person, hurting several men seriously, and said that he also hates women, end quote. He obviously has some very violent tendencies. In comparison to the rest of the men in his group of friends, he was the strongest mentally. He could have led them into the woods. Though his family and doctors say he's been stable for the past two years. What if, just what if, with that big game coming up, he decided to stop taking his pills so nothing would slow his body down for the big game? Then he just lied to his family so they wouldn't know because they've since stated that he took his medication that week. Maybe he got rid of it instead. Going with this thought pattern, it's not unlikely that without the medication, he could have had a psychotic break. If this is the case, it may have been some of his own hallucinations that scared him enough to run him out of the car into the unforgiving frozen wilderness. Between having their own mental disabilities no one in this period of our history understood psychosis and psychotic breaks. The other men very likely just did not know the signs of Gary's mental illness. He was the stronger personality, the one among them who would fight back if threatened. Of the five missing boys, he would be the one most likely to lead and suggest places to go or things to do. <laughs> the other boys' parents weren't really comfortable with Gary either even though they didn't seem to know about his criminal record. The fact of the matter is that regardless of how any one party feels toward Gary, he's still missing. Maybe Gary was a victim of inexplicable circumstances deep in the woods just like the other four. 
Maybe he chose not to take the medicine that carried side effects of drowsiness, lethargy, and dizziness in sight of those Special Olympics basketball games the next day. And inadvertently brought his friends out to their deaths on a schizophrenia-induced adventure. Or maybe he's alive today. He was a fighter, that much is clear. He was willing to do whatever it took to survive, walking dozens of miles out in the snow in lightweight clothing. Would have been excruciating, but so was walking from Portland to Marysville and shimming his way out of a mental health institution's drain pipe. So what would be your opinion in all this? I don't know. I mean, I don't see how we can find the other four but not find him. I mean, it sounds like he made it. It sounds like he Not did. to find him. Yeah. In addition to all of the questions being raised at Gary, there were some other questions going around, too. There are many questions about this weird case. Like, why did the men get lost that night and end up on the mountain? Chico to Yuba City is a straight down Highway 70 through the Central Valley and low-lying land with no snow at this time of year. A 46-mile drive around an hour... The car was found several thousand feet up in an area above the snow line in a completely different direction. Why did they abandon their trip back to Yuba? Were they forced to go up the Bucks Lane on the way to Palmetto City? Did they decide themselves to take a detour or did someone take a wrong turn? Would you have an opinion on that? Would you? (laughs) Yeah, I mean... I don't know. It, there's a piece that leads you to believe maybe he did have a little psychotic break. Maybe he, I don't know, maybe he believed he was taking them to some safety. He believed he needed to take them to some safety for some reason. You know, it's part of his medical condition. I don't know. I, I don't know. And then what happened around the car? The group's car was left open, with gas in the tank, and in working order. Did they somehow leave the car and lose the keys? No, because they were in Metarunga's pocket. But this could explain the strange story told by Joseph Shoons, where he said he saw flashlights around a car. True, true. Could they have been searching in the snow and freaked out by his calls for help in this isolated area? I don't know. Maybe they didn't understand he was saying help because he was having his medical conditions and the pain or shortness of breath, whatever comes with those symptoms. And it wasn't, it was plain in his head he was yelling help, but it wasn't under, you didn't understand it that way when you heard it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I know so what you're about. maybe they didn't hear somebody yelling for help. They heard something different. I don't, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. even worse, maybe they just heard screams. Yeah. Or shouts. Right. So, the next question. How did the group end up around a trailer 19 miles from the car? Ted Weir was found in the trailer. Again, 19 miles from the car. And Madruga, Sterling, and Hewitt were found in the location, but several miles away. How did they walk in normal shoes without outdoor clothing so far in snow that was several feet thick were the group together 
and then decided to separate after Ted's death to try and find help? <laughs> I can't even answer. I can't speculate. I don't even... I mean, maybe they all did make it to that place, and that's how mm -hmm. the cans of food were open because Jack and Gary could. They knew yeah. how to open it. And when Ted died, they all freaked out and went to try to go get help. But that would have been weeks later. Right, right. I just don't even, I can't say that I even have an opinion right now. Because there's so many things that what ifs, coulds, possiblys. Another thing, why did Ted apparently starve to death? Some of the rations in and around the trailer were eaten, but much of it was untouched. Ted apparently had a slow, agonizing death of starvation, having lost over half his body weight. Yep. With so much food close by, though, why wasn't he eating? Well, now, he was the one that had the gangrene on the feet, and the toes were missing from the frostbite and all that. I mean, maybe he, just, he couldn't get up and get the food. Somebody had to bring the food to him. So then why did they quit bringing him food? Don't know. Is there a possibility that he passed out or from weakness, from everything? Good Lord, I know if my feet were in that condition, I'd be freaking out. Shock? I don't know. And Gary freaked out and left him or went to get him help or thought he was dead and thought, I need to run away. I don't know. Perhaps. It's just odd with so much food close by that he wasn't eating, though. Mm -hmm. Had the group been abducted and the perpetrator maybe was preventing access to food or, again, was Ted suffering from the gangrene caused by the frostbite? I don't know. We'll never know. Throughout the course of this mysterious case, there have been thousands of tips and thousands of leads, all of which have hit a wall. Jack Madruga's mother, Mabel, firmly believes that there was some force that made them go up there. She said, quote, They wouldn't have fled off into the woods like a bunch of quail. We know good and well that somebody made them do it. We can't visualize someone getting the upper hand on those five men, but we know it must have been, end quote. But then, just when you think you have asked all the questions and gone through all of the available scenarios, something else happens. This time, a statement by Ted's sister-in-law caught me off guard. Out of all the articles I've read, it never came up, yet it's a pretty decent theory. Ted's sister-in-law said, quote, They seen something at the game at that parking lot. They might have seen it and didn't even realize they seen it, end quote. That's definitely a possibility, and someone followed them. Somebody led them up there. Yeah, yeah, because they were not on the route home. Mm-hmm. Tyler Boswell. And they didn't even know what they saw. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of times these illegals, these bad people, they think you see and realize what they're doing. You end up killed for it or you end up whatever for it when you had no clue what was going on. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, that's actually a pretty decent theory Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it it could explain why they got up there and everything like that, but it still doesn't explain where the heck is Gary at. Yeah. I don't, Gary had to have gotten away. 
But why not come back by now? Fear? People, th oh, they're going to think I did it or something. I don't know. Or maybe he went away, got lost in the woods, and animals got him. I don't know. That would make sense. Yeah. He's far enough out that nobody would look mm -hmm. that far. Mm-hmm. And he may have been a little disoriented in all that was going on, the snow, the et cetera, et cetera. And he went higher up on the mountain or something where there aren't roads or, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just don't know. It, I mean, it would make sense. Yeah. To me, honestly, it's the unknowns that make this so spooky. Mm -hmm. And the fact that there doesn't seem to be any single theory that explains all of the evidence. And when you throw in all of the strange red herrings, things just get downright eerie. And the idea that five adults can get into mortal peril on a routine drive mm -hmm. that was supposed to be through safe and familiar territory and end up somewhere completely different is a really mm -hmm. sobering thought. You know that movie that Dad likes where the black car follows people? Oh, is it like the road to nowhere or something? Something like that. It's like a road that leads to nowhere? Yeah. And you get on this road, and it's like in the middle of nowhere, and all of a sudden, this black car is behind you. And um, people, oh, they end up getting killed. <laughs> I mean, it almost sounds like that. Like, like you have no clue. You're, you're driving down the road. You're innocently driving down the road. They could have been just innocently whatever, like the sister-in-law said. Somebody believes they saw something. Yeah. And it just, you'll never put the pieces together. And then what about that sighting with the woman and the baby and the group of men? Yeah. I I don't know. Yeah, that was the guy that um had the heart had attack. The heart attack. Oh, maybe he was in pain and hallucinating. True, true. Or maybe there was a woman and a baby in the truck that they got in that took them to the cabin. Or I don't know. That would be really, really creepy. So I don't know. I don't know. We will never know. This is overall, it's, it's one, I think it's one of the creepiest ones we've talked mm -hmm. about. Yeah, because there's, there's a million pieces and none of them fit. Mm -mm. We've talked about a lot, and I think this is the creepiest. Mm -hmm. Definitely so. Again, you guys, if you have a theory, hit us up on Instagram. Send us a DM at If I Go Missing Podcast because, you know, we'd, we'd love to hear it. Because obviously we are stumped and don't have any right now <laughs> definitely <laughs> thank you for listening to another episode of if i go missing i'm your host megan and i put a lot of thought and hard work into these episodes i write edit and produce them all myself and it means a lot to me that you guys take the time to listen if you would like to follow us on social media our instagram is at if i go missing podcast then we also have our Twitter, and that one is at Megan Noel Pod. If you want to reach out and suggest a case, you can do that on Instagram or Twitter by sending us a DM. We also have a Facebook page called Megan Noel Podcast, and we also have discussion groups for the podcast. And the name of the discussion group is If I Go Missing, a podcast.